The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. But I just wanted to say a little bit, feel free to write uh, questions while I'm speaking, but just as a little bit of an overview to just help us understand, because, you know, we have a, a tendency with a lot of, not just spiritual things, but just generally uh, with a lot of things in life that move us, that we're kind of drawn to, to imitate them. So if we think that being a loving human being is good, it seems a lot easier to imitate being a good, loving human being instead of to be really curious about it. And curious about, I guess you could say, cause and effect. Like how does, how do my um, attitudes and habits of being irritated and critical and negative, how do, how do those tendencies get fed and reinforced and become a stronger habit? And how do I find my way back to attitudes of love that I trust and that are healing and feel good and are good for those around me? And how do I find my way back and how do I strengthen those and how do I learn to abide and those wholesome attitudes more and more and more and more. That's sort of the attitude I think the Buddha would recommend. And a lot of the time when we're doing like a more formal reflection on loving-kindness or any of the beautiful qualities of compassion, appreciative joy, even that a radiant quality of equanimity, an unshakable balance, no matter what's coming at us, so those beautiful qualities, a lot of times we think that the way we get there is we're kind of looking for the bad guys, looking for the negative attitudes, and I'm going to shoot them, I'll get that one, I'll take care of that one. And so really our attention is aimed toward the unwholesome, negative, tight qualities of mind and heart. And if we do that long enough, hopefully we learn that's not the way to cultivating and maintaining and abiding and these expansive and beautiful qualities of the heart like love, basic goodness, compassion, appreciative joy and equanimity. There's uh, something the Buddha used uh, when he was talking about working with mental distraction and uh, one of the main first go-to movements to take care of a lot of distraction, like having a critical mind, having a lot of ill will, feeling sorry for ourselves, you know, uh, wanting to get even, having resentment. One of the most effective ways isn't to directly try to reduce the resentment or the negative attitude that's present, but he calls it, or it gets translated as a, a kind of substitution. The, Similarly, the image the Buddha uses, in the same way that a carpenter would use a very fresh hardwood peg to pound in and therefore push out the old rotten peg, you know, before they had nails, in the same way, one brings their attention to the beautiful quality of kindness, right? And by really establishing, and you know, we have to learn how to do this to kind of keep love in mind, to hold that image. Ill will literally gets pushed out of the mind. But I'm not pushing it out directly. 
That's the key. I'm not directly, as a person, noticing I have ill will, noticing I have anxiety or fear or anger, and like getting in there and shoveling the anger out of my mind. I'm instead knowing there's anger, knowing that I need an intervention, finding some way, some creative way to find love. It may have nothing to do with the situation that's causing the ill will or the anger. Right? I might turn my attention and notice something over here or something from my memory, from the past. And I'll bring it up, oh yeah, I love my cat. Or oh yeah, there's that cute dog. Or oh yeah, there's my honey. There's this person who's really been there. There's this body right here who is directly feeling the tightness of my aversion and I care about this creature, this bodily creature right here this breathing body, pumping body, sensitive body. I care enough to relate to this body with kindness right now. And by really establishing the reality, I care about this body, or whatever we use to rediscover this capacity for love, by really keeping that in mind, it's like that new wooden peg pushing ill will out by keeping love in mind. And that's sort of the basic muscle for those of us, like when things are rough or when we're first starting to learn as a formal meditation practice, loving kind, the, the various loving-kindness practices. It's really, how do I bring my attention to a real, authentic feeling, quality of love in the heart, and how do I keep that in mind? And no matter what you know, habit, like an old wound comes back to mind, because they will. Not just stuff from today, but the more that we start to settle in the quality of love, the more it sort of brings to the surface, in a way, old wounds that haven't been healed. Old resentments, old fears, old jealousies, or whatever. Whatever wound is not taken care of, they tend to get amplified or seen the more we're learning to trust love. And then we have that choice. Am I going to pay attention to the resentment? Not that that would always be bad. We can bring some wisdom and see that it's just that underlying feeling being felt. But we don't always have to turn toward the difficulties in the mind. There's also the practice of just keeping love in mind. Keep it in the mind, keep it in the mind, until we notice directly, we feel directly its healing quality. Just like here, sitting together, you know, we could keep in mind. It's harder, of course, noti noticing or sensing that there's a bunch of us, you know, because we can't see each other. But, you know, there's 38 people, it looks like, listening, and there are so many other people that we know and love. And that's a beautiful thing. And can we, you know, in the complexity of our lives, for a few minutes and then a few more minutes, can we keep in this appreciation that there are a bunch of people interested in learning how to abide with kindness? That there's a bunch of us right now, somehow connected in this amazing thing we call the internet. And you know, even, you know, in mysterious ways, 
that have nothing to do with distance, that somehow the love that you're tapping into, the goodness that you're feeling, the generous, expansive quality that you're touching into, is not different than the one that I'm touching into. Because in a way it's not so much my love, it's really more the emptiness of aversion, the limiting factor, the limiting quality of mind of hate and fear and anxiety and aversion. And that mind and heart is, you know, there isn't a good way to language it, but it's, it's the heart that is empty of ill will, empty of aversion. And in a funny way, we can meet there. And we can learn to sense that in each other, that capacity, sometimes manifesting right there in the interaction with another person, sometimes not. But we can get skillful even when the person is leading with irritation or their ordinary grumpy personality, like we can see that capacity for goodness there. That it can't actually be completely disguised the human capacity, not just human of course, this possibility of the heart, the sensitive heart, going beyond the limitations of fear and anxiety. And so again, the, the initial move is to have enough faith, enough confidence that we're willing to do the work of keeping something in mind, even though aversion, fear, whatever else might be the dominant quality in my heart and mind, I'm not paying attention to it. I'm skillfully training my mind to keep this in mind. It's subtle, it's more maybe hidden, so I find creative right ways to bring it to mind. That's where we tap into our memories about holding our cat or playing with a person or having a good time with a friend or remembering receiving the love and support from another human being. We bring those to mind and we realize, I care about you. I care about this life. So one way or another we find our way back, we keep it in mind, we keep it in mind, we build some momentum of keeping it in mind until we start to feel directly the felt sense of healing. And by healing I mean the heart less and less entangled with ill will and fear and anxiety. These chronic, not the obvious like fuming with resentment, but the more subtle uh, layers of anxiety and you know identified with separation and aggrieved in one way or another. Those start going away because we're keeping the love in mind and then that feels good. And then we really want to notice that pleasantness, that inner pleasantness of healing, of the releasing of ill will, because it has that expansive generous, open, inclusive quality. And it's a subtle feeling, so we have to train the mind to notice it and keep that subtle feeling because eventually it will be clear enough that the mind is willing to stop trying to be loving and just trust the loving and abide in a sense. Like becoming that radiant goodness because the mind at that time, for moments at a time, maybe longer periods, is empty of ill will. So that's a real taste of liberation. The Buddha talks about 
the liberation of the mind through metta. Right? It's a liberating quality because it liberates the mind from the oppressive habit of ill will, of being afraid, being averse, being controlling and judging, critical in different ways, as a way really to mask pain, the emotional unresolved pain from our lives. So when we learn to keep love in mind, it, it really, there's so much emotional healing that can happen. And it sets up deeper and deeper insight. Because once the heart begins, the mind begins to have a flavor of that freedom. And that, that freedom comes from, in a sense, getting out of the way, not me becoming somebody, but me keeping love in mind, me noticing it's a good feeling, me trusting that good feeling. And in the trusting and the abiding, that's when the self-centered doing can fall away. And there's that's when the deeper taste of freedom. And then the mind starts to learn something about the spiritual path. Right? It's not so much about becoming somebody, like even becoming a loving person. It's about learning how to get out of the way and realize what's available when all of that egoic doing gets in the way. But of course we start, you know, just coming to the cushion or coming to your meditation chair or tuning in to a, a live stream class on loving kindness, there's a lot of self-centered doing in that and sticking with it and keeping in love in mind and keeping in mind and starting over when we notice that we're caught up in some drama. All of that, of course, takes some real commitment. But when there's the good feeling that's coming, then we start moving from doing to abiding. So there's really more about trusting the goodness, trusting the, even the good feeling of that expansive love. So maybe I'll leave it here. And uh, it'd be nice to hear, now it's not so easy to share, but if people would be willing to ask some questions, keep the conversation going share something of your experience during the guided meditation, share times or places where you find that it's not so easy to touch into that confidence that this heart is capable for being good. And Wynn is here, and so between Wynn and me, we'll try to read your comments or questions, and I'll respond. Um, yeah, but what comes to mind, we've all been pushed around in so many different ways, it's hard for us not to have learned a thing or two about how we've been watering seeds of aversion, unfortunately, and fortunately how we've been watering seeds growing the capacity for love, for this more natural, expansive, inclusive quality of the heart. Yeah, so what comes to mind? I'll give you a few minutes to reflect and perhaps a few of you will write some comments or questions. And why don't you see if you can uh, write a chat? Because I notice nobody's 
chatted for a while, so I'm wondering if um, even I just want to make sure it just could be mm-hmm. a couple of words. Yeah, yeah, I cut there. So it's not showing up on mine. Great. Well, I have a question for you then, if you don't have any questions for me. So, like one thing that we can reflect on is, uh, (laughs) is like, how do we find our way back to the different qualities of love? And this is sort of uh, a basic skill that each of us want to have. Like, you know, so we have these four qualities of basic goodness, the kind of more foundational wholesome attitude of our mind and heart. And then when that love connects with suffering, we call it compassion. That Now remember, compassion doesn't mean we're suffering alongside of the suffering that we're seeing in another, or the suffering that we're experiencing. It's not amplifying suffering. It's really this enlivened, beautiful quality that's not afraid of suffering. So it has the capacity to respond if there's something that can be done. And appreciative joy and equanimity. So one thing you could share is like, it's almost like a Buddhist quiz on the beautiful loving qualities of the heart. How can you find, how do you find your way back to mudita, this appreciative joy? How do you remember that you can actually appreciate the goodness and success another person is having? Or how do you get yourself back to compassion, where you remember that you have this capacity? And how do you get yourself back to equanimity? So let me just go to Zenzelay's question. Thanks, Zenzelay. One of the things that hardens and saddens my heart is when beautiful, intelligent people treat each other as if they are the enemy. How can we find the qualities of love when we see people tearing each other apart. Well, we're, we're that person sometimes, aren't we? You know, where we're really tearing. I mean, we might, you know, being common ground people, we're not going to do it so much, so often outwardly, but inwardly, you know, I find myself sometimes, some politicians especially, you know, it's like, no, I don't know about tearing them apart, but wanting them not to be there and, you know, whatever means. And that kind of destruction, like wanting something to happen, wanting people to go away, wanting the difficult situation to go away, um, we understand why that happens. You know, when we're afraid of pain, physical pain, like have have we noticed when we're getting sick, this sort of terror, and it's like, this destructive quality, this cannot be happening to me. And so that sort of tearing somebody else apart, it's this, uh, it's this survival mechanism manifesting in the social realm, you know, with between two people or whatever it might be. And when we're cornered, when we're a cornered animal, and whether it's physically or psychologically, we feel threatened, well, we're going to basically fight back. And if it means tearing somebody apart, and you know, we see this, this happens in marriages or in intimate relationships between two people that have a lot of love, a lot of history, and when conditions are 
you know, particular kind of way, they'll just go for the jugular. So what we can do is have that perspective like, yeah, sometimes it's this way. And, and anger, that anger that leads to that destructive behavior is likened in the Buddhist tradition to a wildfire. You know, once it gets going, it's going to burn whatever. And the thing is, we don't see that destructiveness when we start to water, we're kind of blowing on the embers as we sort of feed the resentment. Now, silently, this is before we start acting it out by you know, using our words to tear somebody apart. But we're there blowing on the embers because somehow we just think it's just a little fire and it's not going to, you know, it's kind of juicy, murderously sweet, I think the Buddha says in one of the discourses, you know, that anger, that resentment. I feel so alive when I think about how much that person is wrong or how much I'm right or how much they should get their just desserts. And what we want to understand is that when we water something, we're setting something in motion a lot like a wildfire. And then it just starts, it has its own feedback mechanism. And the thing is, these patterns, there isn't anybody in control. It's a natural process that feeds on itself. And we may not be able to stop it after a certain point. We start to believe. The, we're in that bubble of resentment and everything is totally believable, even though the way we're thinking, the way we're seeing things is completely colored by the little storm, now maybe a big storm, that the mind has created, where destroying the other person makes total sense, even if it leads to our own demise, like we really destroy something valuable in our own life, doesn't matter, we're going for it. And that's really the delusion of anger. Same with greed. We can get obsessive, entangled, and deluded by greed. And, you know, just imagining the enormity of the human suffering that has been caused by human anger, human delusion, human greed. Endless. Yeah, thanks for that, Senzele. Uh, Zachary has one at the bottom. Well, thanks, Zachary. Could you please expand on equanimity, what equanimity feels like? Is it comparable to the feeling of ease? Well, with all four of these beautiful qualities of the heart, as the um, <clears throat> sense of separation, which is kind of the normal view, right? We're operating in the world from a sense of self, being a part in a fixed and permanent, separate way. And then whenever, whatever the qualities that were, is being cultivated, if there gets to be enough momentum, then that view, that fixed view of self, begins to dissolve because the mind is orienting in that expansive and inclusive quality of love, whether it's appreciative joy or compassion, basic friendliness or equanimity. So they all have that quality of lightness, or you could say ease. But what distinguishes equanimity is more that stable, unflappable balance. Even with confusing and ambiguous circumstances. So you don't know what end is up. You don't know who's good or who's bad, or what I should do, what I shouldn't do, or is this dangerous, or is this safe. 
So you're in life, and it's ambiguous, it's confusing, it's uncertain, and you notice there is something in this mix that feels and seems stable, and balanced, and even, and unflappable. <coughs> but it doesn't mean that we're not an emoting person, or that we're not being touched by the different things coming at us. We might feel a flare-up of anger. We might feel a flare-up of lust, of attraction. We might feel afraid. But there's something there called this quality of equanimity. And equanimity here as a Brahma-Vihara, as a divine abode, it has that same beauty, expansive, inclusive beauty. So it really has a sense of, like, when we keep that in mind, instead of the winds that are blowing this way and that way, we keep the balance in mind. It has a radiant quality. It's a little different than the compassion and the metta. It has a cooler feeling than a warmer feeling. Because it, it, uh, yeah, it's, it's a sort of understanding that everything can be as it is. I'm not saying it's good, it's just that, as I think Sylvia Borstein wrote in one of her books, everything is breathtakingly the only way that it can be. My heart seeing this with equanimity can now respond in a compassionate, kind way. Yeah, thanks for that, Zachary. Carolyn right below Zachary has one. Yeah, so focusing on wisdom arising in people's heart, who are harming others, is the practice here. So focusing on wisdom. And then Mary Laurel writes here, How do we know if we have brought to mind enough intensity of love to match the situation? that we are in. Yeah. Well, you know, we, over time, and you know, I, I'm assuming that this is true for a lot of us, the particular, at any moment in our life, the particular attitude of the mind it's not really, in a sense, in a deeper sense, personal, but we definitely are responsible for what we're feeling, how we're seeing, how we're relating, and the relative wholesomeness or unwholesomeness of the mind. So I think the way I understand Mary Laurel's question is, you know, we need to take responsibility for the qualities that are present. We're, we really have every reason to engage, to be intimate in an active way with the heart and mind. But we learn more and more that the most effective intervention in the mind is to be aware, as opposed to trying to be good or trying not to be bad. I mean, there's, there is a place in life for restraint, no doubt, and there is a place in life to cultivate what's wholesome and to bring it to mind and to keep it in mind, no doubt. But what turns out to be ultimately most powerful is to be profoundly sensitive in a balanced way. So that question like, is there enough love? 
to handle this moment is uh, really first and foremost to be caring enough about the quality that this mind is right here, right now. So before, first and foremost, before I take responsibility for what I'm going to say to this person or how I'm going to handle this sticky situation with one of my kids or my partner, we have this initial responsibility like, can I show up for the heart that's here right now, for the qualities of the heart and mind that are here right now? Can I meet that? Because if I don't meet that, if I don't take responsibility for what's right here, what I'm feeling, how I'm seeing, how it's affecting how I'm seeing, I'm not going to have a lot of success in having a wholesome interaction with the person or people I'm with. And so if we're taking responsibility for meeting the heart, and you know, a lot of ways we do that is we have this intimacy with embodiment. Because the body reflects in a gross or more concrete way what's going on in the heart and mind. In the real thick of it, out in the world when we're interacting with other people, often the mind, emotional level even, is relatively subtle. But the body's relatively obvious, relatively. I mean, most of the time we can still be oblivious to the body, but it's by far easier to drop into the experience of the body. And if, you know, if it's all tight, if it's all hot, bound up, well, that's a serious clue that the mind, you know, there are some unwholesome qualities of mind going. So first and foremost is not to be upset about that, but to meet the bound-up quality of the body with enough integrity, I just want to see what's going on, because I care. It's enlivening to care. It's enlivening to be present. This is the real heart of it, is to feel the goodness of being present. Because then we're building the wholesomeness. We may not have enough love to handle the situation, but at least we're in this in the sort of side of increasing the wholesome qualities because I'm recognizing this willingness to be aware, this wholesome valuing of interest and humility, right? Humility and interest, they go hand in hand. And it really comes from self-compassion and the compassion for others because there's just no way to take care of anybody without that quality. And we have time for one more. It looks like Laura's got one there. Hi, Laura. Humility seems to be a very important stepping stone, yeah, to abiding rather than doing. For me, forgiveness and love most easily begins with the humble understanding that I also cause pain. If I think I am better, is it love? Yeah. Well, and that's the, that's the real trick, that we all have to uh, sort of a higher level practice. But, you know, when as we get better with samadhi, the sort of basic stability of awareness, and as we get better with the wholesome qualities like love and compassion, appreciative joy and equanimity, that good feeling that inclusive, light, easeful, generous, wholesome quality, it's a little bit for the ego, for that, those habits of taking things personally. It's seductive, 
and intoxicating. And we will, to some degrees, and in moments to very big degree, take it personally, and we'll reconstruct a strong sense of self, and we'll notice how we're better than others. And on some objective standard, uh, in a moment, we might have more wholesome qualities than another person. So there's some, you know, relative truth to some of these conclusions. But what is definitely not helpful is the building of a sense of self. Because as Laura is intimating in her comments, we lose that essential ingredient of humility. Which is another way of saying that essential ingredient in seeing the wildness, the impersonal nature, the anatta, that Pali word. It's hard to understand, but it's really pointing to a very subtle but essential truth of every moment, which is stuff is happening. It's alive and interdependent. Everything is moving and there's no static location. There's no me in that dance, in that movement. And humility is one way of understanding uh, and opening to the underlying nature of impersonal nature, of anatta. Yeah, thanks for that, Laura. And Carolyn, did you want to answer her question? Um, it's like thinking that is the practice to um, focus on other people's wisdom arising in their hearts, if they're harming people. Yeah, I see. Yeah, thanks Carolyn for that question. Um, yeah, basically, whatever works, you know, it's really a creative endeavor. So I think, as when help me understand Carolyn's question a little further back in the chat uh, line, so focusing on the wisdom arising in people's hearts who are harming others is the practice here. I think that's a very effective way. I mean, basically, it is a spiritual superpower, no matter who the person is and how they're showing up, to not be confused by the surface meanness, or the surface ignorance, or the surface greed, but to see the potential. That is a superpower. But we don't always have that superpower, where we can really sense that the negative habit that we're seeing isn't the whole picture. And to really see that, yeah, it's arising this negativity, this ill will, even if it's quite destructive, we might characterize it in a kind of relative societal sense as being evil. They need to go to prison because they're harming others. They, they're not fit to be in society because they're dangerous, right? But we, we're not, our understanding and connection with that person isn't limited by their destructive behavior. In the same way that a mother or a father with their child isn't limited by seeing that their child who's acting out and throwing their pudding and uh, saying, I hate you, we're not confused. We're not only seeing their destructive behavior, their negative behavior. We see so much else in that. We see their suffering. We see their confusion. We see they don't know how to get what they want. Right? So we see the bigger picture. Well, we can do that with the sort of, you know, the stereotypic you know, corporate person who's doing terrible things to others, or political leader that's acting out their ignorance, or any kind of person who's 
being really destructive. But even if we can't do that, we can notice our own feelings of vulnerability from that person's destructive behavior and care about that. I need to get myself out of this situation because that person's bad. Like we may not be able to see the whole picture of that human being and their suffering and their confusion and how they're the you know, expression of all their causes and conditions can't be otherwise. But we can feel our own exposure, our own suffering, and we can care about that. So whatever works actually to get the heart reconnected with qualities that we trust, like these four beautiful qualities of the heart and mind. Yeah, any last comments or questions? So I'll just go back like as a kind of homework and I mentioned Patrice will be here next Friday night but you can think of it as a little bit of homework. I'm not sure what style of practice Patrice will lead next week but just to, you know, as a human being that wants to be able to take care of ourselves and take care of each other, how do I find my way back to a basic friendliness? That quality of the mind I characterize as love or basic friendliness. How do I get myself back to a compassionate, tender-heartedness that's enlivening? So like when we think about all the people who are really suffering, not just now of course, there's always people being oppressed or taken advantage of or ill or dying, whatever. How can we be aware, connect with those people in a way that's enlivening? and liberating and responsive, fearlessly responsive to the suffering that we're meeting and running into in our lives. How can we, like when we bring to mind somebody who's really happy or having a lot of success, how can we really appropriately delight, feel enlivened by other people's happiness instead of jealous? How can we touch into that un flappable equanimity, that beautiful, expansive balance. So it's like that is our responsibility to creatively, with our memory, with phrases, with ideas, with like what we pay attention to, be able to uncover that capacity to appreciate joy or to connect and respond to suffering in an, in an enlivening way, or to be friendly, or to be balanced when things are ambiguous or confusing. So, I find it very challenging, <laughs> but I, I'm really enlivened by the challenge. And it means when I'm grumpy, or when I, I have a more and more a real sense of humor about my so-called negative habits of mind, because I know they're optional, they're, they're there, but I don't believe that it has to be that way because I have more and more confidence that these other four qualities, I think it's okay to call them emotions, of basic friendliness and compassion and appreciative joy, sometimes called gladness and equanimity, I know that I can bring them to the fore. And I tell you, one of the most shocking things is like when I have a session like we have tonight or I do 
a more conscious uh, reflection on one of these qualities and feel the healing effect. The most shocking thing is, why don't I do this more often? I just It's like astounding to me. I know how to cultivate. I know how to keep love in mind. Why aren't I doing this all the time? This is the real puzzle. <laughs> it's sort of like, you know, how nice a really good massage can feel. You know, somebody who really knows what they're doing, really knows us, knows like what works for our body, and how wonderful that is. Like, if we could have that at any time, well, we would take advantage of that. And it's the same thing, I think, with the loving-kindness practices. We can do this all day long. And the fact that we're not actively involved in keeping it in mind, not in a kind of I should, but because it, it feels good, it's enlivening, you get more energy than you put into it, why wouldn't we? Well, I think the answer is we're deluded. <laughs> you know, we think worrying about this and planning that and complaining, for some strange reason, is more enjoyable or effective or whatever. Or just, it is our habit, I think. So nice to be with you all tonight. I'm wishing you all great safety out there. So take care of yourselves. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.